Just before I introduce Randall, I want to welcome Don Milam. Don, stand up one second, will you please, sir? This is Don Milam. And he is, he doesn't realize this, but he's, he's one of my heroes. And I'll tell you why. When he was a missionary in Mozambique, they put him in prison for his faith for 10 months. And he still loves Jesus. And I'll tell you, to me, real heroes are people that have been through the fire and come out loving God more than when they went in. And that's really our inheritance. And so I just, Don's an author and an editor and has been involved in, I remember his dad, Don Milam Sr. from like the early, early 70s. And I remember praying when I heard that you were in that prison not knowing you. So Don's a hero. Treat him with the utmost respect, as we shall Randall Worley. Randall, why don't you come on and we'll just uh, cut you loose. Oh, I always look forward to coming here and after hearing Andy, wow, you get to hear that every week and your enthusiasm is underwhelming. (laughs) Was it something I said? Now, I understand the, the time limitations. I, I asked Robin about how much time I had, and I said, you know, I do own a briefcase, but there's nothing brief about my case. <laughs> so uh, it is always a joy to be with you. The McMillan family and my family have a shared history, and you've heard us reference that before, that is um, invaluable. Uh, we honor them so much. And to have my one of my dearest friends in the entire world and colleague, Don Milam, here. He is, uh, we're so near and dear to one another, he's actually moving from Florida, from um, paradise, to live near us in Myrtle Beach. So he's exchanging one of the most beautiful beaches in the world for a second-class beach. <laughs> but he's here this morning, and I so appreciate it. Now, I know what I'm here to do. But in many ways, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. And that is, I'm not sure where to start. (laughs) That may not have been the best metaphor to start with. Now, my text this morning comes from probably one of the least read books in all of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And there's a reason why that there are not many people, there's not many people that spend much time in Ecclesiastes is because it has such a melancholy tone to it. If you've ever read it, you're familiar with that. It starts out, all is vanity. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. That sounds like a real page-turner, doesn't it? I know that if I was writing a book, I don't think that I would start the introduction that way. But if you've read through this short book, some 12 chapters long, that Solomon is responsible for giving us, uh, it is enigmatic in many ways. There are certain things that it seems that he is probing his own psyche for, to try to discover the meaning of life, and he comes up dry. Have you ever noticed that when you've read through it? 
Now, the verses that I've selected, I think, are appropriate for where you are right now. I've been in conversation with Robin over the last few weeks, and it's very important to me because of the value that I have for them and whether you believe this or not, uh, question whether it's genuine, because of the value I have for you and where you're going. And I know that you are in an in-between place, or you're at least entering that. And when we say in-between, we know that that is somewhat of a synonym for transition. And so the verses here, even though they don't use the word transition, this concept is certainly inferred. So Solomon would say, better This is uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 8 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Now, As I read that, I trust that you were able to lean into it and to see that he is trying to make sense of where things began and where they're going to end and everything that happened in the middle. Hence, the concept of transition. And when we use the word transition, it's a word that has been overused, misused, and abused. I'm sure you would agree with that. Quite often when I see people that I haven't seen for some time and I ask them how they're doing, they will respond by saying, well, I'm in transition. Well, if there's anything true about transition, this is true. Transition is a part of the never-ending, ongoing curriculum of life. You're either entering one in the middle of one or on your way to another one. Uh, They never come to an end. Just like our day is divided up in morning, afternoon, and evening, your life, the span of your life as well, is characterized that way. The things that were true of you in the morning of your life, the early years of your life, were not true of you in the afternoon of your life. And the things that were true of you in the afternoon of your life are not true of you in the evening of your life. Does that make sense to you? Obviously, you can look at me and ascertain, you don't need any discernment by looking at my appearance, that I am nearing the evening hours of my life. And so it's important for me to make course adjustments in order to make these transitions in a way that I live fully. That's, that's what it's all about. Uh, you know, sometimes I think we don't understand that God does never test us to see what we've learned as if he doesn't already know. But God is forever testing us to see if we're still willing to learn. This is the curriculum, so to speak, of transitions. Sometimes they're seamless. Sometimes they're very messy. Some of you might be in a transition right now where you spent many, many years becoming comfortable and confident in your particular skill set only to discover that someone decided that you're no longer relevant or important to them anymore. And so now you are wondering, which way do I go now? And uh, I am being required to learn a new set of skills. 
And I feel awkward about this. I feel extreme uncertainty. You know, I believe it's true, very true, that it's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble as much as it is the things that we are so certain of that just aren't so. And it's important for us to realize, and this is counterintuitive to a lot of people, that faith and predictability cannot coexist, that faith is not a matter of certainty, but really is more a matter of uncertainty. If Abram, the father of our faith, has this disruption, this interruption in his life, after 75 years of living in a land that he was familiar with and speaking a language that he was fluent in and understanding the culture and the customs that he was brought up in. And God interrupts and disrupts his life and says, I'm calling you to leave all of that and to go into a place that I will show you. Don't you love the ambiguity in which God speaks to us? No, you don't. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, he didn't say, well, you know, Abram's response was not, well, would, it, would you be so kind as to send an emissary from this place that you're wanting me to go so that I can le- at least, you know, do you have some travel brochures? Or can I talk to somebody who's been there before? But God just tells him, no, he says, you start walking and I'll show you as you walk. This is really what the walk of faith looks like. It is laden with the unclear, the mysterious, the ambiguous. You see, God knows that if he told you everything you wanted to know or thought you should know, that you certainly would not walk by faith. In fact, some of the things that you're desperate for him to tell you right now, if he told you, it would not create faith, it would create unbelief. I've pressed him time and time again for clarity on certain situations and decisions, and it seems that he was deaf to me. And I have lived long enough to understand, again, as I just said, that if he had given me the clarity that I was asking for, then I would have not gone forward. I would have sought for another route. How many of you ever heard the, um, I'm sure you have, uh, the well-known poem, Footprints in the Sand? You familiar with that one? Maybe some of the younger ones, I don't see them nodding. Google it while I'm talking. Footprints in the sand. It seems that this poem was inspired by an individual that in a dream went to heaven and from heaven's perspective was looking back on their life and God let them see the panorama of their entire life from beginning to end. And as they looked down the beach this way, they saw two footprints in the sand, two sets of footprints. As they scanned further down the beach, they saw only one set of footprints. And this created curiosity in the individual asked, what happened here, back here, there are two sets of footprints. Here, there's one set of footprints. In a very endearing way, the father said, well, that's when I had to carry you. 
Now, there's somebody that took this poem even further. And as the person looked further down the beach, they saw that there was one set of footprints in the sand, and then there were these long tread marks. (laughs) And the question then was, what happened there? Oh, that's when I drug you. Now, this, this is probably going to challenge your theology, but whenever Jesus said in, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, that no man comes to him unless the Father draws him, that, that sounds rather innocuous, doesn't it? He just draws you. He woos you. The word draw there literally means to drag. I see that I'm finally resonating with at least a few people. You see, it's so important for us to, and maybe I should have prefaced my remarks with this, and it's not, not too late. But, uh, what I came to share with you today is not necessarily some cleverly crafted sermon, even though I have that aptitude. That's not what I came to do. I, I came to bring more of an exhortation, and I hope that that does not seem presumptuous to you. I I came from a church culture that whenever someone was identified as an exhorter as opposed to being uh, one who had the acumen of a teacher, that they were basically saying they're not a very good communicator, but they um, at least they can encourage you and (laughs) exhort you. They don't really have a lot of substance, but at least they're an exhorter. That sounds familiar to you, I'm sure. But in reality, that, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate definition of exhortation or to be an exhorter because when Paul uses the word, it means to come alongside someone. It's, it's very much, I think, uh, mirrored in the ministry of these anonymous women whose names that we don't know even to this day that were known as midwives in the Old Testament. They seldom get any mention whatsoever, these midwives that were always there at the right time when travail started to coach the mother through the process of birthing the child. Why? Because she herself had empathy. And you know, there is a distinct difference between empathy and sympathy. There, I've, I've learned over the years that there are some people that when they are sharing with me their, their innermost feelings, I have to be careful not to say, I know how you feel. Because that implies empathy. I can feel sympathy for them. But empathy, my definition of empathy is the echo of someone else's pain. It means when they are sharing with you from their innermost being, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is not just truth. It is also wrapped up in the pain, the pathos that we feel when they are sharing and you feel that this is resonating uh, from their heart. It's almost like... um, they are pinging something deep in you. And I use the word to ping. You know, this is the means by which mariners are able to determine the depth of the waters they are in. They bounce sonar waves off the bottom. And when it comes back, they can tell how deep it is. That is really a picture of what empathy really looks like. And you know when you're talking to somebody that empathizes with you. 
So unless you just think I was waxing philosophical there, I've been where you are. I've been through these transitions leading people corporately. I've been through these transitions in my own life. And I understand the uncertainty and I understand the challenges and how, again, that they are seldom ever seamless. But I think you really need to grasp this thing about God's nature and intentions toward us. And I promise you, if you are able to trust his intentions, you can endure any intensity. That's, that's the key to enduring intensity is trusting his ultimate intentions. Is that these transitions that are constantly coming to us, some of them are anticipated, some of them are unanticipated, are causing us to be increased in our ability to take risk. I felt some years ago when I passed into my 50s that he was not going to require of me as much risk as he did in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. I was seriously mistaken <laughs> about that. You know, there is something about assumption that we need to be aware of. Assumption is the very lowest form of knowledge. It has no witness and no evidence whatsoever. And so I, I thought, okay, from here on out, he is not going to challenge me with as many impossibilities as he has in the previous three decades. But <clears throat> have you discovered that if you are not surrounded with impossibility, that that in itself excludes his involvement? If you are not dealing with something right now that from your perspective you have deemed to be totally impossible, then you're excluding his involvement. The thing that attracts him. And you know, do you know that God has a weakness? I love saying that. That's offensive to a lot of people. He does have a weakness. You're his weakness. Weakness is attractive to him. Vulnerability is irresistible to him. That's, again, so counter to our rationale. What risk are you facing right now? You say, well, right now everything's pretty safe. Well, maybe I should put you on notice this morning. That you're about to be ambushed <laughs> by some very significant risk. I love what T.S. Eliot says about risk. He said, it's not until you risk doing something that cannot be undone that you will ever discover what could be done. And then he said, it's not until you risk going too far that you will ever discover how far you can go. Am I still talking to the right people? <laughs> what is your risk tolerance right now? He's getting ready 
to increase that dramatically. <laughs> He's really not interested in how comfortable we can become. Because if we don't have something regularly to overcome, we will eventually be overcome by complacency. Don and I, we talk about this all the time. And um, he is further along in the evening of his life. (laughs) But as we have empathized with one another uh, with all the transitions that he has come through and his career and his marriage and his wife is passing into the next dimension not long ago and uh, all the all the things that he has known very well how to do now he's faced with at at this stage in his life learning again learning again there is uh, um, something that I discovered years ago in 25 years of being a a senior leader um, that I wished I had known in the beginning about leading people this feeling that, that I always had to know just exactly where we were going you know, it's so important in that church culture that I came up in. You had to vision cast. We had to, we had to clearly, you know, we went to this uh, passage of Scripture in the book of Habakkuk that talks about the vision is for an appointed time. And this is speaking of watchmen, you know. They are able to see into the future, these seers. The vision is for an appointed Time. Write the vision and make it plain. And I did that. And quite often there were people that were pressing me about which direction we were going. And I didn't have a clue. But because I'm pretty quick on my feet and I have somewhat of a command of the language, I could make up some bogus answer. The truth is, most of the men that were true patriarchs of the faith in Scripture. Even Jesus, this may sound irreverent, even blasphemous to some of you, but even Jesus, I don't think, quite often knew from moment to moment what might be next. Boy, that's, that's such a relief to me. I think leadership really needs to be released from that unrealistic expectation and to know that they also are walking maybe only a step or two ahead of you. Is this making sense to you at all? You're a cerebral bunch, aren't you? You should have got a cerebral teacher. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. Steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. I read uh, not long ago about a guy you probably never heard of. His name is George Megan. 
George Megan, his claim to fame is that he took the longest walk in all of history. He walked from the southernmost tip of South America all the way up that continent and across North America to its northernmost point. Over 19,000 miles he walked. Now why? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> he wrote a book about his experience and his journey. But when I read about that and I thought about the nomadic culture of the Old Testament and how that wherever they went primarily, they got there by walking. And I'm a walker. I walk several miles a week. And just this past weekend in a neighborhood that I've lived in for 14 years, I began to notice things that had been there all along that I had not seen previously. And I would not have seen them if I had not taken these new paths. And I had driven these streets before, but because I was so intent on where I was going, I was missing in my desire to maintain momentum those things that were hidden in plain sight that were absolutely <clears throat> momentous. See, sometimes uh, when it comes to uh, momentum or making progress, it may not seem to you that you are making progress when quite honestly, sometimes when you have concluded that you are not making progress, God is making more progress than you are even aware of. It's like someone this past week I was talking to in Pennsylvania that was, uh, and I, I could hear what they were saying. I could empathize with it. They were talking about how they'd gone for weeks and they hadn't really felt anything. They hadn't heard anything from God. And uh, <clears throat> even though they, they knew that he was inescapable and that he literally has an obsession with his sons and daughters, and that's appropriate. He has an obsession with us. He's more obsessed with you than you realize. There was still this disconnect, this feeling of disconnect. I think that's the reason why... Uh, I believe it was Job that says that those who observe lying vanities, they forsake their own mercy. It's true, isn't it, that what you focus on will determine what you miss. And so I looked at the person and what I said to them was somewhat of a conundrum. I said to them, God's perceived absence is proof of his presence. Should I say that again? God's perceived absence is absolute proof of his presence. There is no such thing as the feeler's translation of the scripture. <laughs> yeah. I had a pastor text me this morning, uh, as I do quite often, uh, who was looking for some inspiration. Oh, what I would do to get royalties <laughs> on all my Sunday mornings when I hear from people around the country. You think I'm making this up. I'm not. And he says, I feel like a deaf mute. And I text him back and I said, and this wasn't a canned answer. It was something I learned a long time ago. I said, Mark... I almost said his last name. <clears throat> There's a lot of marks out there. 
so don't try to put it together. Don't connect the dots. I said, Mark, I said, when you can't hear, he's teaching you how to see. And when you can't see, he's trying to teach you how to hear. I said, maybe you are groping for language and all God wants you to do is walk into the meeting today and to look at people and let them live. Because quite often it wasn't what Jesus said as much as it was just a look. I hope that I am creating more answers than I am, or more questions than I am answers. Because I think I've said in my previous visits here that probably one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given you is not one of the gifts of the Spirit. If I could edit the Scripture, I probably would add a tenth gift of the Spirit, which is the gift of mystery. Because mystery is truly the antidote to us living in, in the monotonous and the mundane. This is, this is all a part of what it means to live in these continual transitions, moving from one place to another. Some of you have been willing to settle prematurely because you are, how shall I say this? You are controlled by the security of sameness. Lest you think I forgot the wording that the wise man used, this man who's reflecting on his life after all these years, he talk, starts talking about fear and anger. Did you notice that? Or have you forgotten what I read? Better is the end than the beginning. And then he says, be patient. This is, this is the language that connotes transition. You've got to be patient in between, right? Let patience have her Perfect work, James would say. I'll, that always intrigued me. Uh, whenever I'm going to come back to that thought that I started. That always intrigued me in James whenever he says, you know, when you're going through all these diverse situations, let patience have her. Because refers to patience in the feminine gender. Let patience have her perfect work. What do you think it, what, that he was implying there? Well, if you allow me to take liberty with that statement, along with some of the things that Paul says about the nature of faith, is that he inseminates us with the seed of faith. And then there has to be this gestation period in which you grow to accommodate what is growing in you until Christ be formed in us. And there's not a woman in this room <coughs> that is... Lacking gratitude for the fact that from the moment that she discovered that she was with child, that she did not have an eight-pound baby grow in her in a matter of four to six weeks. She's thankful for the nine months that she was given <laughs> to accommodate what was working in her. Is this making sense to you? So whenever, again, he is talking about be not quick in your spirit, become angry for anger lodges in the hearts of the fools and say not why were the former days better than these. He is touching on something here that is, I think, revealing even to himself as he is writing these words. 
Because, see, fear, fear is the primary emotion that produces the symptom of anger. If there's anybody in this room right now that, are, that is angry about where you are in comparison to where you've come from, anger is not the problem. It's fear. And fear manifests because we're realizing that we cannot control the outcome. That's what fear is. It's the desire to control outcomes. I wonder what this is going to look like. And then you get angry. Anybody need any therapy on that? Hmm? See, what he's doing is he's putting his finger on something that you have made your source. And he is certainly, as you've heard so many times, not jealous of you, but he is jealous for you. He's not emotionally insecure, but he is jealous for you. And he will not allow anything to become your source. So he'll put his finger on it. And then, when that fear that you've learned to manage and to sublimate, it surfaces, and then you get angry about it, he's doing you a favor. Now, as I come to a conclusion, the steps of a good man. Go ahead and stand. You're astonished, aren't you? Those of you that have ever been in my meetings are totally astonished at the brevity of my remarks. You do understand that over-explanation over robs people of astonishment. <laughs> For the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. Sometimes they're incremental. Sometimes they seem to be exponential. I've learned that the race does not always go to the swiftest. I didn't know that when I was a young man. Used to, when I would take steps at my house, I would, because of my impatience, sometimes I would take them two or three at a time because I've got quite a stride. Until I got a little older and I stumbled. <laughs> and paid for it with the bruises and the lacerations. And I began to understand that even in this daily exercise that I almost do, uh, unconsciously of taking these steps, that there is something in that that God wants to show me in the progression of how He brings me from one place to the next. They're ordered, and sometimes, uh, you know, we, are, we think that movement and frenetic activity is so important in order to at least appear to have faith. But sometimes the most the faithful thing you can do is to do nothing. The hardest thing you will ever do is to do nothing. You know, most of you right now appear to be uh, rather docile and, and, and calm right now, but you remind me of some of the mallards in my neighborhood. What did he call us? There are a lot of mallards that live in my ducks. 
that live in my neighborhood. And sometimes when I walk by the ponds and I see them just gliding, on the surface they're just gliding. But I know that just beneath the surface there is this <laughs> frenzied activity. You got my point now, don't you? Back to this thing of the steps. I know that this, I'm pointing out the obvious, and I have an amazing grasp for the obvious. Um, that when you, when you look at a step back there, you see that it is both vertical and horizontal. This is what creates the step itself. And uh, the horizontal part of the step, or the vertical part of the step, is referred to as the riser. It's a tread and a riser, tread and a riser, tread and a riser. And now what I'm going to do is invite you to look at it from this perspective. It is not just something down at your feet, but it's up here as well. And some of you have hit a wall or what you think is a wall, and it's really not a wall. If you are able to somehow heighten your perception and get your hand up a little further, you would realize that what you've hit is not a wall, but merely the riser to the next step. Anybody hit a wall here lately? Hmm? Yeah, it's just telling you that there's another step, another step. So like I said, I've come in exhortation this morning with my scattered remarks. But I think I've given you something to think about in terms of transition. And I want to invite you to do something with me if you will humor me a little bit here. And I know that we're limited in space, but I think we ought to do an exercise. Are you ready for this? You know, you know the Bible says... Um, that if we are not weary in well-doing, we will reap in due season if we faint not. You familiar with those verses? Be not weary in well-doing. Right? I like the wording of that. Don't be weary of well-doing. He did not say that you would not become weary in well-doing. You do become weary in well-doing. The issue is not becoming weary of well-doing. For you'll reap in due season if you faint not. We're, you know, when he talks about fainting, what, what, is, what is this mechanism, this almost involuntary mechanism of fainting? It's when the, the mind <clears throat> is so overwhelmed that it shuts down and it decides it's going to shut everything else down. I remember at uh, my brother-in-law's wedding, uh, I'd never seen this before, I'd heard about it, but one of the groomsmen, before the end of the ceremony, I, I didn't see it, but I heard it first. He locked his legs. He was standing there through this, you know, ceremony, and boom, and he bounced, just like a tree falling in the woods. And, um, you know, this happened... Gosh, 40 years ago. And I said, what on earth happened to that? Because he was only 14, 15 years old. 
And they said, well, he locked his legs too long. Some of you are locked up right now, and that's why you feel like you're about to faint. And so what God wants you to do, in just a prophetic exercise, this should be easy for you, it may be awkward for some, is that He just wants you to step out, to step forward, and to know just in that, you may not feel anything, this may, you know, this may seem like you know, a totally ridiculous request, but I have had that experience so, t- so many times when He would speak to me and say, I want you just to stand up and take a step in the room. And in doing so, because see, like we've heard it so many times, the journey of a thousand miles, how does it start with a single step? Starts with a single step. So how many of you right now are either entering a transition in the middle of the one on, or you know you're on the way to another <laughs> and you're willing to say, I'm going to take that step toward the unknown. Can you do that now? Are you paralyzed? I take that step now. Yeah. I step, I step out of the boat. I step out of what's comfortable. I step out of what I'm secure in. I step out of what I'm familiar with. I step out of what I have come to feel I can control into the uncontrollable, into uncertainty. And I believe that as I do, as I do, like Peter, there is buoyancy that is coming to me. <laughs> it's coming now. The buoyancy of faith is coming to me. Why is it that we obsess over the fact that he did sink? And I think that's interesting. You know, he didn't sink like a rock. He was beginning to sink. How do you begin to sink? You ever thought about that? It's almost like in the storm that the boat was brimming with water and they are losing their minds so much so that nobody's noticing that it's defying the laws of buoyancy even though the boat is brimming with water, it's still not sinking. Right? Are you ready for some new buoyancy? Are you ready for Him to increase your risk? I am. I am. Because I have made a decision that I am not going to live the last half of my life in a boring, mundane, predictable, expected way. Yeah. Surprise me, Lord. Surprise me. Can you say that to him? Surprise me. Yeah. May you overwhelm your sons and daughters in this... May you overwhelm your sons and daughters in this room with something that is more overwhelming than what is presently overwhelming them. (laughs) That's your anointing right there, that phraseology. I bless them, Lord. I thank you for the relationship that you've given me with Robin and Donna and John Mark and all the siblings. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for these people that open their hearts to me throughout the years. And I just bless them. And I say to them, Lord, that no matter how intense the contractions will become in the months ahead, that what they are going to birth, what they are going to come into this next dimension, through this next transition, is going to far exceed anything that they could have ever imagined or expected. 
I just say that, Lord. I speak it into the atmosphere. This has been good for a while, but it's time to move. This has worked for a while, but it's time to move. And there's a new sound, and there's a new voice, and there's a new culture even that is coming, Lord, to Queen City Church. Something is so exciting here that I felt when I walked in this morning that I have not felt in my previous visits. It's here. It's in the air. It's electric. That's the only way I know how to put it, Lord. If I lived here, I would come to this church. And I mean that. I don't say that. Just anywhere. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But I don't live here, so you don't have to worry about me harassing. Love you. Why don't you grab a seat one more moment? We want to. Um, yeah, you're good. We're having we have ministry teams that will pray for anyone in the building that will. If you just present yourself over here in this corner, would love to pray for you. They've been trained to be very helpful. And remember, teenagers, sign up for the baseball game. Men, if you're not on that email list, sign up for that. And we want to receive um, an offering for Randall this morning. It's really the way he makes his living, and I want to be sure he makes a good one. So if you would like to, here's what we do. If someone stuck $10,000 in this offering, Randall would get that plus whatever came in. What I mean is we don't, we don't, when they're not big enough, we add to it. And, I, you know, so f- trust me, we, we give him what you want him to have. And if it's not enough, we'll give him some more because we love him, appreciate him, want him to do well. So if you would like to give this morning, if you raise your hand, we have ushers that will scramble frenetically around the building because I didn't mention this to him earlier. And we'll give you some envelopes. There they are. Good deal. And um, you can make it out to Queen City Church. All of it in its entirety is going to go to Randall. Anyone else need envelopes? Back there in the back. I'm not seeing any over here. Yeah, Ben, will you bring a couple of those? Yeah, there we go. And what we'll do is we'll put these buckets... Be smart. We'll put the buckets on the back corners of the bar there, and um, everything that goes into this offering we're going to give to Randall. We love you so much, Randall. Thank you. You're such an insightful, challenging person and a genuine person. I like that. I like that about Randall's wife's just the same. They're just great people. So thank God. Let's pray for him. Father, we just extend our hand. We extend our faith. We extend our love towards Randall. We ask for Randall and Penny and his entire family that you would open up the way in places where there is no way, that you would speak life and reality on an ongoing basis. And, Lord, we agree with Randall. The second half of his life will far exceed the first half, and the first half's been really good. So we break... um, inordinate threats or intimidation or anything that tries to come against Randall 
his family, his children, his grandchildren. And we ask for mercy and grace to be their portion in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Bless you guys. Have a great week. Come to the men's meeting on Wednesday. It's going to be fun. Have a great day.